Morning, church. How we doing? That was really bad. Let's try that again. Good morning, church. How we doing? It's Mother's Day. Aren't you excited to be in church and celebrate mothers and learn from God's word? So this is uh, an exciting Sunday. So glad to be back with you. Last week, we talked about this idea of on the road and that Jesus encounters these people, transforms their lives. Uh, We talked about the road, uh, these two guys on the road to Emmaus. And that Jesus met them in the middle of their despair, in the middle of their doubt, and then confronted them. Pretty, he confronted them pretty sternly and, and then had a meal with them. And then they saw him. And as a result of that, they ran, into, ran back to Jerusalem saying, we've seen the Messiah. How cool uh, that is. When, when I was uh, uh, growing up, all I, wanted, all I wanted was a BMX bike. So I had had this other like pedal bike. I just wanted a BMX bike. And so... We didn't have a lot of money, but my parents had saved up and they bought me this chromed out bike called the Viper. How cool is that, right? It was called the Viper and, and, uh, and it had handbrakes. So it no longer had the pedal brakes, it had handbrakes. And we lived on top of a hill, which wasn't like a cute little hill. It was like, a, oh my gosh, that is a mountain that a house is sitting on top of. That was our house. You know, like those hills where you're driving up and you can't see the other side? That was our house. Our house was right on top. So we used to go on these family walks on Sundays, and my dad said to me, look, you can't take the Viper out uh, because you have girly arms and you can't squeeze the brakes yet. So, uh, so wait, wait for me, wait for me so you don't go to your impending death as you try to head down the hill. And of course, like an arrogant little child I was, I thought, Dad doesn't know what he's talking about. And of course, I took off down the hill. And I, everything was going really great. I was really enjoying myself, having a blast. And then there's this point I, in physics at which things go from like, this is really great, to I'm going to die. Because now I've hit terminal velocity, right? And I'm flying. And all of a sudden, it's like, this is real. I'm, I'm go, I'm, I, it, the end is near, that kind of thing. So I'm flying down this hill, screaming at the top of my lungs, trying to grab the brakes with my girly arms and they won't do it. And so I revert to old bike technology, which I was going to slam on the brakes. Here's the deal. The pedals on the Viper had Viper teeth where you would put your feet. So when I slammed on it, it flipped around and bit me in the shin. My bike bit me. Yeah. So I'm bleeding now and I'm screaming as I go down the hill because my bike bit me and I disobeyed my dad. The, at the end of this hill is a road, and, and so I hit this road, flipped over my handlebars, flew through a briar bur- bush, flipped over backwards, and I landed between two rocks and two trees, and I passed out completely. You get the scene, right? Okay, John 4, let's get there. <laughs> a little background on the book of John, the writer, the author, John. John has historically been known as an eagle. Okay, because you know how he starts off his gospel. He starts off the gospel like this. Think of an eagle, really high in the air. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No other gospel writer starts that way. John starts off and he says this, Jesus is God. 
That's who he is. He's God. And so you need to know that before I tell you anything else is that he is God. So he soars way high above. But what John does all throughout his narrative, throughout his gospel, is he swoops in. So now we see him um, at the beginning here. He, he turns water into wine. He meets Nicodemus. And, and in this part, he swoops down to humanity. This God who created everything becomes man and walks among us and incarnates us. Uh, And he comes in and he meets these people at moments in their lives. Now, we're going to go through a story, a woman, a Samaritan woman from Saqqar at a well. Here's a, a note. Most of us have heard this story. And what I would ask you to do is just to back up. Be patient with how this will unravel. My hope and my prayer is that you listen to it for the first time. Don't jump to conclusions. You're, you're kind of dishonoring the scriptures as you do that. The Holy Spirit is speaking something new today for you this morning. And if you get ahead of it, you might miss it. If you go, oh, I kind of know this story. I kind of know how it goes. Don't do that. Don't do that. Like, because scripture is sharper than a two-edged sword, right? And it wants to show you something that maybe you haven't seen before. So re- just completely back up a little bit and pretend like you've never heard this before. Give me a thumbs up. Can we do that this morning? Can we do that, church? Say yes. yes. Say it like you mean it. Yes. Okay, good. John 4, here we go. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who, was ba- who baptized, but it was his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back uh, once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob, Jacob had given to the son of Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came out to draw the water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy some food. The Samaritan woman said to him, um, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if, if you knew If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman says, you have nothing to draw. You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it as he did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? And of course Jesus would say, yes, I'm greater than Jacob. I'm the Messiah, okay? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give to them will never, be thir- will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I don't have to go thirsty and I I don't have to keep coming to draw this water. He told her, go and tell your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right. When you have, that you have no husband, the fact is, is that you have five husbands and 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 the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, 
the woman said. I, I can see that, that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you, Jew, but you Jews claim that the, that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know for salvation is from the Jew, yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. By the way, put a little asterisk. Anytime that Jesus repeats himself, he's trying to say something. Anytime a gospel writer is repeating himself constantly Constantly, it's because he's trying to get a point across. That's important. The woman said, I know the Messiah, uh, that uh, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of God, and every all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We start off this passage in verses one through three with this little conundrum between the Pharisees, which isn't a unusual but basically they don't like John and all of a sudden Jesus is baptizing more people than John and so you remember they cut John's head off they're not a big fan of John and so all of a sudden this Jesus character is baptizing all these people and the Pharisees are getting worked up about it but verse 4 is really the reason why Jesus left Galilee he left Galilee as a result in verse 4 it says that he had to go to Samaria. Have you ever had this moment in your life where you felt like you just had to go somewhere? Like you didn't know why and maybe it didn't make sense but you had to go. The Spirit of God was doing something in your heart. Like I remember 12 years ago flying into Phoenix. I had gone to a wedding. First time I'd ever been there. And then on the way back it was pitch black and the Phoenician Valley is vast. It's huge. And uh, it was all lit up and I had this moment as we were flying over like I'm supposed to be here. And so I got off the plane and I looked at my wife and I said, I think we're supposed to go to Phoenix, but I'm not exactly sure why. And she said, okay, which was really weird for me because she tends to not want to follow those kind of things. But I'm like, I have this unction, yeah. Um, And so she's like, no, let's go. And so we packed up six months later and headed to Phoenix. Just kind of like, wow, what are we doing here? You know, and that's what's going, Jesus is being beckoned by the Holy Spirit to go to Sakaar for a divine appointment. Jesus encounters people because he's compelled to. It's who he is. God sends his son, Emmanuel, God with us, compelled to be amongst us, to care for us. And in this moment, he comes to this woman. And in this woman, he comes to all of humanity. Verses four through eight. Um, he makes his way to Samaria. Now, the interesting thing about this journey is that Samaria, going through Samaria, is the easiest way to get back to Jerusalem. It's a three-day journey. But Jews hated Samaritans so much that they would literally go around, which made it a six-day journey instead of a three-day journey. They would cross over the treacherous waters of the Jordan River twice just to Uh, Just to avoid these people. They hated, they hated the Samaritans. And here Jesus feels called to go to this place that nobody wants to go. Jesus is drawn to the hard places while typically we do everything we can avoid those places. Christian consumerism is real. There is something in our hearts and our lives that craves comfort and structure. 
We hate ambiguity. We hate it. We, we want convenience. And so this comes into tension with us because we're like, but that's difficult, right? Like, and our culture is surrounded with how to make things easier for us. Like, have you seen these diet pills? They go like this. You don't even need to exercise. Just pop this little baby and watch the pounds roll off, right? Eat whatever you want. Sit on your couch and watch a movie and just snacky, snack, snack. But don't worry, you can just pop this little pill and it'll all go away. (laughs) Glorious little invention, right? You don't even need to work out. Don't even lift a finger. Just pop this thing in your mouth, right? And then you're like, I wonder if there's somebody who could pop the pill in my mouth for me. Anyway, um, (laughs) right? We have autocorrect on our phones and in our emails, in our documents. Like, I don't even know how to spell anymore. Right? I just start lobbing letters up and hoping that it turns into a word, right? Like our poor children, what are gonna become of them? Like Prime Now, Amazon Prime Now. Like it will literally, if you have a desire, it can be dropped off at your door in an hour. Not only that, they want drones to like spin around the universe and drop items on your door. And we're like, that makes sense. I don't have to leave my house and a little drone will drop me a present at my front door and it's like Christmas, <laughs> right? This is great news. But the problem is this, is it's starting to etch something in our heart that, that this is what happens is, well, this is how everything is. Like everything's this way. And it's counterintuitive to what Jesus is trying to do in each and every one of our lives. He is calling us to go to those difficult places to transform cultures, to go in those places that are difficult and hard, but we have a culture in which resists that completely. St. Francis of Assisi says this. He says, start doing what's necessary, then do what's possible, and suddenly you are doing the impossible. This is about putting one step in front of the other and following Jesus in obedience to the places he's calling you. And by the way, just in case you're wondering, it's typically hard because he wants all of you. And he's typically in conflict with your comfort. We do everything we can to, be, to avoid being inconvenienced. The road of life transformation, here's the deal, the road uh, to life transformation is rocky and unpredictable, but it is where God is calling his people. That is why Jesus is called to go through Samaria for a divine appointment in which God is calling him to. And he sits on this edge of this well And he waits at noonday for a a divine appointment. And this woman comes up. And as she comes up, she sees this man sitting on the well. And she was like, what is he doing here? And then Jesus does something incredibly radical. He says, okay, could I have a drink? Could I have a drink of water? Now, something that we typically miss in this passage, that we often miss in this passage, is the little part that comes before it. It's actually in brackets. And it says something like this. It says, the disciples went into town to get some food. How many of you read that or, or, or have recognized that part in, in the past or maybe just now? And it, maybe it never struck out to you, but I just want to let you know how radical that little phrase is. Because these guys, they don't want anything to do with, with Samaritans. They're like dogs. They would rather have Samaritans dead. But yet, here in this passage, John so casually says, oh yeah, they went into town to grab some grub with the Samaritan peeps, right? 
All it tells you is that somehow they have come to see Jesus' love and care for people to the point where they are willing to turn a 400-year conflict of hate against these people to go into their town and to get food from them. Why? Oh, because they were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were nobodies, and Jesus called them and loved them. And so they turn and they go into the Samaritan village. And this woman, she's experiencing this same moment that the disciples, I'm sure, are working through as they come into Samaria. The woman's like, what are you doing here? Why, do you, why are you talking to me? Don't you know that Jews hate Samaritans? And not only that, but you're asking me for water. Like, so Jesus is a man, and that's weird. He's a Jew, and there's all this conflict that goes along with that because Samaritans interbreeded with the Assyrians when they got captured, and they created their own holy mount on Mount Gerizim, which, by the way, this well is at the bottom of. And so Jews hated Samaritans. And here this Jew, this rabbi, is asking her, the town scarlet, for a drink. Bizarre. You see, rabbis in that time, they wouldn't even talk to women in public. They wouldn't even address their wives and their daughters in public. In fact, they called them the bruised and the bloody because they would keep their eyes down and they would close their eyes as they walked by women and smash into walls. Just a bunch of dudes with bruises and bloody noses all over the place because they wanted to stay holy. So she's, you have to grab this moment. This is a revolutionary, oh my gosh, kind of moment. She can't believe it. And so Jesus starts unpacking this moment for her in, 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 uh, in verses 10 through 15. It's called the living water discourse. And the interesting thing about this discourse is it mimics, it mirrors what Jesus has just done with Nicodemus. Do you remember this story? He goes with Nicodemus and he has this conversation with Nicodemus, which is Nicodemus says, hey, what, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus says, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, how am I going to do that? How am I going to jump back into my mother's womb and then come out as, like, this makes no sense to me. Because he's completely missed the point. This happens with the woman at the well. She can only think and wrap her mind around the things of earth. And for her, her greatest need, her greatest desire, is that she doesn't want to keep coming out to the well. Why? Because it is the very thing that separates her from her community. She comes to the well at noon because none of the women want anything to do with her. None of the community want to do with her because they know who she is. They know what she's done. They know she's a harlot. And so she's like, if you can give me living water so I can stop doing this and ostracizing myself or my community, that would be really great. Because I'm done being embarrassed. I'm done with this half a mile walk to this well and a half a mile walk back alone. Like if you could fix that problem for me, that would be great. And so she's thinking of things very temporal, very, very here on earth. And Jesus is trying to explain to her eternity. And doesn't he do that to all of us? Isn't that the, the, the struggle for all of us is we're so obsessed with with what's happening now. Jesus, fix me now. Fix my problems. Take all the pain away. No more suffering. I'm done with it. Like, fix now. And, and for most of us, what he's trying to teach us is a picture of eternity. But we missed it completely because we're so obsessed with the things of earth. Suresh uh, is the, the president of Harvest India. It's an organization I work with. And I was in a, minute, a season of ministry that was really hard for me. I mean, stuff was going, I was in conflict with my senior pastor. It was such a hard time. And so I go to India, and we're in this village in the middle of nowhere. And, 
and, and a guy is presenting the gospel to these people, right? They're just, he's just preaching powerfully. There's probably a thousand people there. And Suresh reads over to me and he goes, isn't ministry awesome? And I was like, no, it's not. I, I, I hate it right now. I'm so sick of ministry. I'm so sick of problems and, and conflict. I'm so, he's like, isn't it great? He's the busiest guy I know. He's the busiest guy. We have 2,000 church plants in four states. Okay, we have, we have 26 schools. We have AIDS hospice. We have uh, red light district ministry. We have, uh, we have Bible colleges, all this stuff. And he's in this village watching this person proclaim the good needs of Christ and going, isn't this awesome? And I'm like, no, it's not awesome. Do you know the conflict that I'm going through? Do you know how hard it is? And it's almost like you want to be like, shut up. Like, look what's going on. You're, this eternity is happening here in a village in nowhere, and you're talking about how you just don't like it, what's happening at your church, and how you wish it was different. But that's us, isn't it? And so we miss the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because we're so tied and tethered to this earth. Augustine says this, he says, our hearts being restless till they find their rest in thee. We're just running around, we're so busy and he's going, shh, let me explain eternity to you. And then Jesus does something really interesting in verse 16. What, what Jesus does in verse 16 is the conver- conversation is going just fine. And then Jesus pulls an emergency break. And he says, you know, he starts talking about living water. She says, I like that water. He says, listen, this is about eternity. And, and he's explaining this to her. And then he goes, hey, quick question. Uh, where's your husband? Like, now imagine you're this woman, and the conversation is going well, you're super confused because he's a Jew and a rabbi, and he's talking to you, and then he starts unpacking this thing about living water, and then all of a sudden, he exposes your greatest sin. You can almost feel the, the blood rushing to her cheeks. You can see it, can't you? You can feel the weight of shame on her shoulders as she sits in that going, how did he know? And then now, not only that, he goes, and she goes, I don't have a husband. So she tries to avoid it. I don't, I don't have a husband. And he goes, you're right. You have five. And the man you're currently with isn't one of them. How did he know? How did he know my greatest pain? How did he know that? Have you ever had a moment in your life where all of a sudden it was just, it was so radical and it was such a like, oh my gosh, how did that happen? Like, I remember being 22 years old. Patty and I had been married for nine months. And, and, and I came into the bathroom and I saw this little stick and it had like two little pink like dashes. So I brought it out to her, I was like, what's this? And she's like, we're pregnant. And I was like, oh, <laughs> what? And she goes, and I just peed on that. Oh, gosh. <laughs> right, but it's just like, your whole world is just like, what just happened right now? How many of you have had a moment like that, like that you, is vivid for you, that it just felt like an emergency break in your life? This is what Jesus does to her. He comes after her. He just completely throws on the emergency brake and he goes, I'm coming after the very thing that you've held so close to your heart. And he does that to you and to I. He does that to us. 
Because most of us have, are living our lives with a clouded lens. And that lens has been created by pain and suffering that you have gone to. By moms who didn't love their daughters enough. And dads who didn't care for their daughters enough. And dads who didn't lift up their sons and criticize them. And, and told them they weren't good enough and weren't masculine enough. And that they had to do more by, by husbands and wives who haven't loved each other as Christ has loved the church. By parents and by grandparents and by boyfriends and by girlfriends and by pain and by bullying. This is a lens in which we see life through. All of those things to which our reality is now this is who I am. And I start viewing the world through this lens. And what Jesus does is he goes, let me tell you who you really are. All that stuff has shaped the way you live your life and you keep hiding behind it. You keep pretending like this is who you are and I guess these are just my dysfunctions. I guess this is just how it's gonna be. I guess my alcoholism is just what it is. I guess I'm just a gossiper. And he comes after that. He's going to continue to come after that over and over and over. Why? Because he wants all of you. He wants every piece of you and those things in which you hide and which you, you think no one is going to know, he knows and will be exposed because he loves you. It's why he confronts her in the way that he confronts her, but she still doesn't see it. She still doesn't understand. John Piper says this, he says, the quickest way to the heart is through a wound Barclay, William Barclay, a commentator, says, no man really sees himself until he sees himself in the presence of Christ. And then he is appalled at the sight. Plato says, the first and best victory is conquering self. So when she does finally come to understand he knows my secret, he starts, she starts to try to make amends for it. Well, now, where do I go make this better? How do I make up for this? Because that's what we do, right? When there's a problem at hand, we try to go, how fast can I fix this so I don't have to feel this way anymore? Are you feeling me? This is us. How fast can I fix this? And Jesus starts, Jesus starts helping her understand, listen, you're talking about where you worship and where you bring, where, where, how to make things better and that you should, what mountain you should go to. Should I go to Gerizim? Should I go to the Holy Mountain? Like, which one? And what Jesus says is you need me. There's coming a time where none of that matters. The only thing that matters is me. But we're so busy trying to make up, some, uh, make up for stuff because we're tethered to earth. Like, think about this moment, the prodigal son. And, and, and historically, this story of the prodigal woman, or, or the, of this woman and the prodigal son, is the same narrative. Okay, it's John's mirroring of what the other gospel writers are saying. This is his version of the prodigal son. The prodigal son, coming to understand and know what he's done to hurt his father, starts a journey back home. But as he's doing this, he's rehearsing this apology, where he says, Father, forgive me, I, I've sinned against heaven, against earth, I'm not worthy to call your son, take me on as a slave. He's rehearsing this, rehearsing this, and then he sees his father from a distance, and he meets his father with that initially. How do I make this better? I'll tell my dad I'm a dirty dog, and I, I wanna make it all better, and I'll just be a slave, and what does the father do? He hugs him, he loves him, he kisses him, and if you, Henry Nouwen would say, he mothers the prodigal son. He acts and comes as a mother and loves the son. He, he doesn't even acknowledge the, the repentance. He just wants the progress home. 
Jesus is saying, you're talking about where you should make amends and how to make things right. I want it you. I want all of you. I want spirit and truth. I want the Holy Spirit to come inside of you so you can understand and be aware of the fact that you are a sinner and that you have been the scarlet. And for you to come and wear the full weight of that and then still wear the full weight is I love you. And I am who you have been looking for. Not in these men. Not in filling yourself up with all the wrong things. It's in me. And in verse 28, which we didn't read, she runs into town and she says, let me tell you a man who knows everything about me. Because she met the Messiah and she found rest in him. Where grace and love collide, life change happens. When you begin to receive the love of the Father, understand your depravity, understand that those things in your life in which you try to hide, he is actively coming after because he loves you. And where you understand the grace, what is the great gift of God in your life, and you understand the love of the Father, it's where your life will truly begin to change. So there I was, laying on the ground, between these two rocks and these two trees, looking up the hill. And what I saw first was my father running towards me. And what I assumed he was running towards me was to tell me how terrible I was, to tell me this is exactly what I deserve. Listen, this is what you get when you disobey, when you don't listen to your father. This is what the consequences are. Look, you almost died. He ran down and he picked me up and he carried me home and he picked out my thorns and he never said a word about my sin. He just displayed love. He knew I knew that I deserved that, that pain, that suffering. But he in his grace and his love embraced me, carried me up the hill and said, I love you. This is what God the Father has done to you through Jesus Christ. He's come to you. He's met you in your depravity. So the question then becomes, what now? What do I do with this passage? Where do I go with this? Start here. You're the woman. Not someone else, not a neighbor you know or a buddy that you've been thinking about, it's you. You're the woman. The story is the story of humanity. This is your story. And you had nothing to offer God. In fact, the scriptures would say that you were an enemy of God. And Jesus comes to you and he says, I want to share eternity with you. I want to pull out and expose that depravity in which you have in your life and say, that does not define you. I do. I define you. I'm your father, and I love you. Will you change? Will you believe that he is who he says he is and drink of this living water that leads humanity in freedom in Christ? Will you keep trying to pretend that you have it all together? The American mantra is just make it through it. Pretend like everything's better. Buy more stuff, get into more relationships, and everything will be fine. How's it working out? Right? It's not. It's leaving us empty when the Father offers us living water. 
where you keep trying to pretend that you have it all together, the byproduct of meeting Jesus is both painful and celebratory. The byproduct of meeting Jesus is both painful and celebratory. Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, true worship lies in the heart paying reverence to him, your soul obeying him and your inner nature coming into conformity into his own nature by the work of his spirit in your soul. So to drink the living water of salvation, you must deal with God on a heart level as he opens your eyes to who he really is and to see your own desperate need as a sinner before him, you must bow in submission to him. Six years ago, Penny and I was my first time in India. Um, and my wife and I, we had talked for a long time about adoption. And, um, and I met this little girl. Her name was Wasuntha. And Wasuntha's story goes like this. Um, Wasuntha was abandoned by her parents. And... Um, and this family took her in from the streets and abused her. She's got scars on her head and starved her. They were raising her as a slave in the home to sell her on the black market uh, to the highest bidder because she was a black beauty. And so that's what they were raising her to do. And so one day she was locked in a closet. They were starving her and she was screaming. The next day our neighbor came over and rescued her out of the home and brought her to the orphanage. I showed up three days later and met this little girl and I was just drawn to her chaotic nature and drawn to her pain. And I just, we wanted to do something. So we, we found a family and we asked that family, hey, would, would you raise her? We'll pay you to raise her while we try to figure out what to do. And, and so they, they said they did. So the next year I came back to be with her and spend time with her. And, and uh, she sat on my lap and she was eating chicken. And she ate the chicken and then she started eating the chicken bones. And I was like, no, babe, don't, don't eat the chicken bones. Like, those are bad for you. They'll hurt you. And she got mad at me, and she ate all the chicken bones. And so I go over to the family. I'm going, what gives? Like, like we're giving you this money to take care of her. Like, she's in a school. She has new clothing, and, and we've given you enough food for, or money for food. Like, what's going on? He said, because she still thinks she's a slave. See, she's hoarding mangoes and hiding things because she's afraid that it's going to go away. She has not come to understand that she's a daughter. Oh, it just broke my heart. So the next year I came back, she sat on my lap, she ate chicken, left the bones. And I said, what changed? Like, what's happened? And he said, oh, this little slave girl has finally come to understand she's a daughter and it's changed everything. People of God, you are sons and daughters of the Most High. Stop living like slaves. Stop living in the waters of your depravity and start living through them for the glory of God. Because what happens in the moment where this woman sees the Messiah and understands her love and has worked through her pain and her suffering, what happens? She turns and she runs into town and she proclaims, let me tell you about a man who knows everything about me. He's transformed my life and he'll transform your life too because when the people of God come to understand the gift of God, they go change the world. That's what happens. This is the gospel good news that Jesus has given to us. Why are we so sad? 
Why are we so stoic in our faith? We should be running up and down going, let me tell you about Jesus, a man who told me everything about myself, and yet he still continued to love me. Let me tell you about a man who saw my alcoholism. Let me tell you about a man who, who saw my, 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 my thoughts, my pornographic addiction. Let me tell you about uh, a God who, who, who meets me in the midst of all the pain that I've been through, and he calls me daughter. And he calls me son. Let me tell you about him. The greatest gift the church can give the world is that we are sinful. But we have a savior who loves us and wants us to live out of that love to transform our culture. Amen. The great gift of this passage is this. You're a mess up. You're a complete and utter mess up. And he loved you so much that he came after you and he died for you. He gave you the gift of salvation, not for yourself, but for the world. You see, when we experience the love of the Father, it has individual ramifications. But when we experience the love of the Father, it also has communal ramifications. It's not just for me. Jesus didn't die on the cross just for me. John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the what, church? For the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You're to go tell the world of the good news that has come into your life and into your heart and transformed. And if you're still in that place of wrestling through it, that control, release it. In the name of Jesus and the power through the Holy Spirit, release that and tell somebody that pain in your life. Tell that somebody that thing that you're wrestling with. Be real about who you are because Jesus wants to meet you in that place. He wants to transform your life so that you'll transform other people's. Cool? Get it? Got it? Good.